Hey, Katie. Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. How are you doing today, Dan? Good. It's hot. It is so hot. This is must be the hottest day of the year, right? Yeah. How hot was it yesterday? Like 30 it's 31 today. And I have been out of the house like all day. I got in about an hour ago. Bad deci- No, it's a bad decision. I'm so hot. I've changed my clothes three times. <laughs> But outside definitely could be better than inside. It's relatively cool in here. I've turned the fan off so we didn't get the sound, but we do have a fan. Yeah, the fl- this flag gets ridiculously hot. It's definitely nicer. Out- I, mean, I went to the post box earlier. That's like the most outdoor time I've had today. Yeah, my I was just texting my friend who is Greek and she goes to Greece every summer. And yeah. she was saying how when it's really, really hot, they would like put towels in the freezer and then at night, they'd like take the towels out of the freezer and wrap themselves. Oh, and I was tip. like, what? That sounds amazing. <laughs> I need to put me now. a towel in the fridge. <laughs> oh my God, Dan, I bought this massive bag of frozen peas at the beginning of lockdown. It was like the 16th or 17th of March. And it was the biggest bag of peas I've ever seen in my life. Honestly, it was like, imagine like a pillowcase. <laughs> It was almost like, seriously, um, and we just finished them. So that's how long. <laughs> Good going. That is a big bag of peas. So when I bought it, people laughed. They thought I was panicking. But no, it was just me forward planning. Wow. I only ever buy rice in there, in bags outside. Oh, yeah. We have the big the big rice bag as well. And the big olive oil cans. They're good. A can of oil. Because I've got like a a fancy olive oil dispenser that I got for Christmas. So I can pour the can into there using like a funnel. Yeah. That's really old school. That's me. It's like a 1930s cafe. (laughs) (laughs) I do like my house to resemble a 1930s cafe. (laughs) It's just me opening the door in a pinny. Hello. (laughs) Welcome. So what have you been doing? Have you seen anything good? Have you read anything good? I started trying to catch up on um, Vikings again. And I I forgot how good it was. It's incredible. I've always thought about watching Vikings. It's awesome. I stopped watching it when Ragnar died. Ragnar Spoilers. People will know that, surely. <laughs> <laughs> if, they, if they watch it. Anyway. They're tuning in to anyway. a history podcast. They know. <laughs> um... But yeah, yeah, I watched. I stopped watching it for a while, but uh, I've got back into it. And it's it's got better actually. I don't know why I stopped watching it. The battle scenes are amazing, and um, also Edge is in it. The wrestler Edge, he's just he just returned. And oh my god, Edge! He's in it. Love Edge. So yeah. How are you? What have you been watching? Um, I have obviously been still watching The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> I also watched a film yesterday called Exit Plan. It's a Dan- okay. Danish film. It's got um, huge my boobs, Jamie Lannister, the guy who plays Jamie oh, Lannister, yeah, yeah. whose name I can't pronounce, because he's actually Danish, yeah. in it. Um, and it's basically this weird kind of trippy sci-fi film where he goes to this place where you can kind of, you know, the places in like other countries where you can commit suicide, but, you know, like legally. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. he's got like a head, so like a tumour or something. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that they're kind of, weird they're not like proper and there's some weird stuff to do with like turning the dead people into like trees and stuff um and it's true yeah and he like changes his mind and they won't let him go and yeah so it's it was like a tree person no like 
they grow a tree from the dead body. Oh. Okay. Yeah, it's weird. They're like, you can choose whatever plant you want. I'm like, that's not the point. So they just seem like you use him as like a grow bag. Yeah, that's exactly what they were going to do. <laughs> um, I mean, like, there, there are worse ways. Because the film got like quite bad reviews. But as like a weird kind of trippy sci-fi film, it was actually really good. Okay. So, what, what's it on? I might check it out. Um, it's on dodgy, dodgy bags. streaming sites for... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um i think it probably you can probably like buy it from amazon or something okay then. um and i, I started reading that. a new book called three body problem have you heard of this book yeah, okay i have not no um so it's kind of like this weird mashup between like history philosophy fiction it's mainly a f- it's a fiction mm-hmm. sci-fi fiction but it's got lots of history and philosophy and and then science so it starts in like the cultural revolution china Mm-hmm. and then skips forward like 40 nice. years so it's yeah I'm, i haven't skipped forward yet i'm about 40 pages in because i only just started it but so far it's been both enlightening and enjoyable so and yeah. i believe it's a trilogy as well so if i like this one i will definitely continue on with it nice what's it called again the three body problem i'll send cool. you yeah send you a textage or give you a lend- oh. lendage <clears throat> of the actual book. Give me a lend. Oh, can I lend that? Uh, what am I? I'm reading Ivan's War at the moment by Catherine Merrydale. Nice. It's, uh, pretty good. Social history of the Red Army during World War Two. Nice, nice. It started off very slow, but it's uh, yeah, it gets pretty good. Actually. Is it like a micro history, or is it more like a over like overarching? Does she go into like people's individual stories, or is it just? Yeah, yeah. It's like it, it's it's kind of like an overarching history, but through telling individual stories kind of thing. Nice, I love a micro history. Linking that together, yeah. it's my favorite. It's, it's good. Uh, it was a toss up between that and the Red Army and the Second World War by Alexander Hill. That's meant to be brilliant. Alexander Hill. But uh, that one wasn't on sale, so yeah, sometimes I it picked is. Catherine. I have been to a bookshop twice already, Dan. Really? Yeah, because I've been to work twice, and there's a Daunt Books just down the road from work, so. Into it. It's quite weird being in the library, just me on my own. <laughs> yeah, I bet it it's, is. it's a bit strange. Is it haunted? It, it could actually genuinely be haunted. My um, colleague, who is author, also an awesome author, yeah, she actually oh, nice. put a, has like a ghost story and takes place like in the hall. Really? I mean, it's quite she, odd. Like a, a real like experience, or she just wrote one? I think there's part of it she told me was a real life experience. Yeah. Not her experience, somebody else's experience. Okay, then. But yeah, it's a bit strange. But it is good because there's loads of stuff that I wasn't getting done that I needed to get done. So. Like the secret plans. Oh my god, everyone. There's this box in the archives where I work. Huge box. This is It's about the length of like a normal double bed. That's how long it is. And yeah. it just says the word plans on it <laughs> with a full stop. I love the full stop. It was my, I love a good place full stop. And I was like, oh my god, what are these plans? Like, <laughs> I do want to. They just like all plans, <laughs> all plans ever. Maybe it's like maybe they are plans for a double bed, just in scale, like one to <laughs> oh one scale. <laughs> I, I reckon they're probably. Well, my guess. I wonder if, like, my colleague sometimes does listen to this podcast, so maybe she can tell me what's in there. But my guess is they're architectural plans for the hall. Because it's so oh, big, yeah. maybe they're, like, r- do you know what I mean? I can't yeah, yeah. see what else would be in there. Plans. 
If I was on my own, I'd have to probably get them out, I reckon. And then I'd just get really panicky because I wouldn't be able to put them back in. I'd be like, oh my god, I've ruined everything. I ruined all the plans. They're going to have to use plan B, whatever it is. (laughs) Oh no, plan B's on the other side. (laughs) Is there gold in this country? Can you actually mine gold in this country? I don't think so. So basically, if if you're claiming that the thing that you are selling... As gold or silver, it has to be Hallmark. So oh, okay. you can't like sell something and be like, it's a gold watch if it's not Hallmark. If it's not, it's elite. Like, I don't know if it's like illegal. It must be illegal. Anyway, so it has yeah, to be Hallmark. And so there's all these different assay offices. The one that I work at in the hall is the London assay office. Oh, cool. Before we talk about your person, we should talk about the news yep. that has just happened. Yeah. Which one? I'm talking about Rebecca Long Bailey. Oh boy! Yeah, I, was I saw your tweet saying that. you. I'm so glad I'm let, not labour right now. <laughs> Face palm. It just seems to come up constantly, and it's just like, oh god, it's like. Yeah, well, so for those of you that don't know, Rebecca Long Bailey has been asked to step down from the front bench, well, the, the shadow cabinet, um, by Keir Starmer because she retweeted an article that had some questionable um, remarks in it in regards to the anti-Semitism debate. Um, and and racism. So, yeah, I I think that Keir Starmer probably did the right thing there in terms of mm. his leadership. Um, I haven't read the article, so I can't really comment on, you know, the comments that were in the article. But I don't really have any strong feelings towards Re- Rebecca Long Bailey. Like, yeah, I actually when I voted for the leadership, I left her out of my vote. I didn't even put her as my third choice. I just left her out <laughs> because I just don't really like feel anything for her. And like I said before, I need to like have some sort of connection to my yeah my MPs. So I really like that Keir Starmer has like done something very quickly, but I can't really comment <laughs> on whether he's done the right thing because I haven't read the article. So Yeah, I haven't read it either. It's just, uh, yeah, it, it just felt like maybe... Um... They were like finally moving away from this, and then it's just come back up again. And it's just like, oh god, guys! And then like it causes such a storm on Twitter. Yeah. Like whenever this comes up, and it's just like, guys, what are you doing? I mean, there are constant so, yeah. Twitter storms at the moment. Like I, I don't yeah. even want to look at Twitter at the moment because it's constant storms. There's like nothing but storms. Yeah. So, but Completely. but Katie Hopkins has been kicked off Twitter for good, oh, yeah. which is fabulous. Yeah, at least there was some good news. Says Vin. It's a much nicer place for it. Though, for some reason, I'm still Absolutely. seeing like videos of her from like Vimo, people posting them, and I'm really? like, why are you posting them? There's tons of nutcases on Twitter, though, isn't there? That's the, that's the problem. So, yeah. Her content will never truly disappear. Alas. <clears throat> Would you like to, to educate me about someone? Oh, yes. <laughs> Let's do this. My person. Your person. Cool. Have you ever heard of Colonel Suzuki Keiji? No, I have not. He is probably Imperial Japan's most successful spy. What? Oh, I love a spy story. Yeah. Yes. Yours. He's, uh, <laughs> he's, yeah, he's proper awesome, actually. Like, I wanted to like kind of like leave him for some possible because I wanted to do him justice. But in the end, I just did him because I've been working really hard and I haven't had time to like research. So I was just like, okay, I'll just do Suzuki now because I kind of know everything about him already and I don't have to do any research. Nice. So hopefully I can do him, do him justice. I'm sure you will. Okay. So he was born on the 6th of February, uh, 1897 to a farming family 
in Hamamatsu, which is uh, kind of like central Japan, but in the south. Not much is really known about his like childhood or like his younger life. Uh, not until he kind of like reached military school. So he trained at the Imperial Japanese Army Academy, or the Raikugan Shikan Gaku. Uh, he graduated in 1918 as an infantry officer. Um, so just after World War One, so he didn't see any action there. Subsequently attended the General Staff College. Uh, he's, it said he had a brief career with the infantry after that uh, in China, but was withdrawn for unknown reasons. <laughs> but um, it could be due to his... He kind of had a quite radical Pan-Asianist leanings, which probably wouldn't have made him... Would have made him like less... A less than enthusiastic soldier in the, in the war in China. Less than um, enthusiastic again, soldier. <laughs> But then again, he was withdrawn in 1929, so I don't really know which, where he would have been serving. Um, so some between, uh, sometime between 1929 and 1930, Suzuki was sent to engage in clandestine operations in the Philippines. Oh, by who? Who was he sent by? Hmm. Uh, sorry? Who was he sent by? You said he was sent, but... Oh, uh, by, by the uh, Imperial Japanese oh, okay. uh, uh, staff, um, army staff. Uh, so that would be the beginning of Suzuki's uh, career as a spy. So one major intelligence operation he took uh, in the Philippines was uh, to measure the depth of the water around Manila, which seems quite mundane, but it, it would prove invaluable during the uh, invasion a decade later. Is that what they were um, planning? They were just like, go measure the water. So At that time, they didn't really know what they were doing, but... Um, <laughs> They'd always kind of like been vaguely interested in the like, Philippines. Like um, when America invaded at the end of in the like, end of the nineteenth century, Japan sent arms to the Philippine rebels oh. and resistance groups fighting against the Americans, and sent like a couple of officers to help train them. But actually, I think the, the boat they sent with the weapons sunk on the way there. But they did manage to send officers there to like train the Filipino uh, resistance soldiers. And then when the Philippines uh, Filipinos were like defeated, their main leaders fled to Tokyo and lived there. Okay. They would return with the Japanese uh, when they... Anyway, uh, where am I? <laughs> that little tangent. In, in uh, Manila. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so yeah, but what he really excelled in was making contact with independence movements and helping spread anti-colonial sentiment. Uh, in his studies, he specialised in Anglo-American affairs, making him an expert in the colonial systems of the two countries, meaning he knew exactly what to exploit. Unfortunately, at this point, the war against uh, Britain and America was kind of very low down in a uh, in the uh, the priorities of the uh, of the main Imperial Japanese Army staff. Uh, they were kind of more interested in uh, a war against Russia with China. So, when is this? Remind me. This is still like the early thirties. Okay, cool. Uh, at some point, he attended the Nakano School, the elite training ground for Japanese spies and a hotbed of radical Pan-Asianists. Wait, an elite... Um, sorry. Just this school. Uh, elite... This school. Just set the scene, so... <laughs> it's just training <laughs> yeah, it's like... Japanese spies, and we just know about yeah, it. Yeah, basically. It's... Sorry? Just know... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, now we do, because it doesn't exist anymore. Like, it, oh, okay. it went down with, like, the... the imp- like, after the war, basically. Nice. But it was it was attached to um, Okawa's... Uh, academy. Macau was kind of like um, I, I suppose you could call him like the main Pan-Asianist like theorist, like academic but that that academy trained foreign spies. Yes. 
yeah to send back to like, their own country so like these this was kind of like a group grouping of kind of like uh, academies that would train men espionage so uh at this time yeah as i said the focus was mainly on a continental war against uh, either china or the soviet union but ironically it was the continental war against china that would lead to the war against the West anyway, so because China was being supplied via the Burma Road. Because of that, Burma became a target, and because Burma became a target, Suzuki got to do his best work. Suzuki arrived in Bangkok to set up the headquarters of the Minami Kikan, his intelligence unit, on the 24th of February 1941, just nine months before the start of the war in the Pacific, which shows how fast he worked. From there, he slipped into Burma and onto Rangoon, where he played the role of a mild-mannered reporter, Minami Masuyo, building contacts amongst the heavy hitters of the anti-British independence movement, such as Bar Mao. Um, one group in particular stood out to him, and they were the Thakins. The Thakins were made up of a group of students led by Aung San, father of the current leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, so, originally the Thakins had intended to seek support from the communists in China. Uh, in fact, many of the progressive, educated, and left-leaning Thakins, including... Aung San, um, did not agree with what the Japanese forces had done in their invasion of China, and so had more in co- felt they had more in common with China than they did with Japan. However, they were pragmatic, and uh, they realised that like they had to work with whoever was willing to give them support. So, Aung San and his colleague, San Miang, tried to make their journey to Shanxi, the home of the communists, but had become stranded for months in Amoy. Suzuki then sent out Japanese agents to rescue the duo and fly them to Tokyo, and they accepted. However, Suzuki recorded later, uh, among the Myanmar nationalists, there were, any, there were two schools of thought on seeking foreign aid. One idea was to form a formal alliance with China or Russia, and the others favoured Japan. The first group were in the majority, but the Simpimov instead made him all the more intent uh, on proving his anti-colonial credentials. So, um, in this period... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you might not know this, but just as a side yeah. thing, what language is he speaking? Uh, he would be speaking Japanese. Yeah, but he did. He could speak by um. Burmese okay, as well. so yeah, I was just wondering because like, what from all of the kind of English or yeah American spies that I know, they're very like well versed in languages as well. Yeah, because I'm I'm sure he, I'm pretty sure he could speak Burmese anyway. He could definitely speak English because that was his kind of like area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of expertise, and a lot of people, a lot of like elites in Burma could speak. English as well. Okay, cool. um, that makes sense. Okay, cool. Sidebar. So Suzuki believed Aung San to be honest, brave, but immature. Uh, still, he asked a young student to draft a blueprint for what he saw uh, an independent Myanmar like being. Um, this document still exists. Uh, it didn't go up in smoke like so much of uh, the rest of Japanese intelligence from the war. Wow. Um, However, many scholars question how me- how much this document was edited by Suzuki to make it palatable to Tokyo. Uh, okay. Uh, but that that wasn't to flush frustrate Arm's plans, but rather to ensure the operation went ahead. So uh, to- Tokyo gave Suzuki the go ahead to create a Burmese army to fight the British. Yep. And in in their mind, to ultimately close or at least frustrate supplies to China via the Burma Road. Um, so in mid nineteen forty one just six months before the outbreak of war between the British and the Japanese, Aung San and 20 other Thakins were taken to a secret um, base uh, in Hainan Island, 
Uh, that's like the islands just like in the south of China. It's quite big. Um, so undergrow uh, training. So these guys would become known as the 30 comrades. So their training would focus on like intelligence gathering, sabotage and guerrilla warfare. Uh, all of this was done under the watchful eye of Suzuki. Apparently the Thakins found the training harsh and didn't much care for the Japanese military culture brutality and humiliation, and at least once considered rebelling. However, they managed to see out the training, and in December 1941, just before the commencement of hostilities, the Burma Independence Army was deemed ready for operation. Ready! Boom! It was decided amongst the comrades that Suzuki would be made the commander of the Burmese Independence Army, with the rank of general, though he remained a colonel in the Japanese Army. It was just his kind of like honorary like uh, rank in the Burmese Army. Aung San then became his chief of staff, serving immediately under him. As a general of the Burmese army, Suzuki thought it was only right that he take on a Burmese nom de guerre, so he chose Bo Mogyo, which translates into Thunderbolt. So there's a reason behind this. A popular Burmese uh, prophecy suggested that a thunderbolt would eventually strike down the umbrella, a symbol of British colonial rule. The umbrella? <laughs> Yeah, just the umbrella. Like the middle class man with his bowler hat and umbrella. So they kind oh, of. Oh, wow. Consist- I mean, yeah, they're not wrong. We do use umbrellas quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty rainy. And, uh, and like, what's her name? Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah, that's she, like, true. Around a while. she loves an umbrella. So Suzuki Naini identified himself as the savior of Burma, but he also spoke of being a descendant of Prince Mingan, uh, who was exiled from Bur- the Burmese royal family. After the British invasion. So yeah, so he claimed basically to be Burmese royalty. Which uh, I think everyone kind of accepted. He was just like, yeah. Oh, did you not know? He's just like, when you were a farmer. Like, aren't you from a farming family? But didn't you know I was was Burmese royalty? Yeah, well, it's just like, I'm still Burmese royalty though. Like, the prince came, he worked in the farm for a bit. And then I came into existence, so. So yeah. That's, ob- that's obviously what totally happened. what happened. I don't know how you're <laughs> questioning it. But there we go. So there was like no doubt that he believed in the cause. He was... Uh, uh, yeah, so he just kind of like wanted to find a way to identify himself even, like, even more closely with it, I think, basically. So before they marched on Myanmar, the uh, 30 comrades held a sui-sork ceremony in the house in Bangkok. So there's a tradition among soldiers in which a small amount of each of their blood is mixed with liquor and it all is consumed by all the group. Oh no, shut so they can up! Kind of like oh my ingest god! Ingest each other's blood. Oh my god, that's horrific. Which is like kind of uh, interesting. <laughs> I don't know if I'm really just. Would do I mean, it, just just put this out there, Dan. I'm never <coughs> going to be drinking your blood. Just to let you know. Are you sure? I mean, like it's tasty blood. I I get like I used to get a lot of nosebleeds, so I've drunk quite a lot. Oh of it. god. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of those kids. I was a nosebleed kid. (laughs) So, the initial Burmese independence army forces included Myanmar exiles and hundreds of Thai of Burmese origins. Uh, When the imperial headquarters asked Suzuki how much he wanted in uh, assistance and arms, Suzuki replied that he would need arms and equipment for 10,000 men, but did not require any Japanese troops. So he kind of like wanted to like lead this army on its own to go retake the country. He didn't want like a Japanese army to accompany it. However, this wasn't to be, and the operation wasn't given the go-ahead until the Japanese forces invaded Burma in late January 1942. 
So, along with the Japanese, marched the uh, Burmese Independence Army, which, by Suzuki's calculation, numbered 2,300 men, along with 300 tons of equipment. So not quite the 10,000 men that he'd hoped. However, as the army marched, they recruited new members, taking control of towns and villages as it went. By the end of the first stage of the Burma campaign, I think this number's right. I haven't read uh, books about this campaign for a little while now. But I think they they ended up numbering like 100,000 men. Oh, wow. Which, uh, but basically meant that like a large percentage was nothing more than like an untrained rabble. They just picked up people as they went and they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll march with you. We're part of this army now. (laughs) So much so that kind of like most of the engagements, they they kind of like engaged the British army like a few times and most of it was just disastrous because they were just untrained, an untrained rabble. However, on one occasion, one of the 30 comrades ambushed retreating elements of the 7th Armour Brigade with 400 men. Their casualties were heavy, around 300 wounded and 60 killed, but they helped the Japanese destroy 10 tanks and inflict 350 casualties on the British. Which isn't bad, considering they had tanks and the Burmese didn't. Uh, So, they also engaged in a fair few atrocities. Which Suzuki may have been involved oh, with. Um, he, well, he certainly witnessed them. He certainly knew that they happened. So, as was common in colonial empires, the British used minorities to produce, to police the majority. And as such, they recruited Karens and Rohingya into the British Karens. colonial forces. Yeah, Karens. You know, like, Karen, who's always like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the name comes from. Karen, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're the British I think that's what the army should do they should not just recruit loads of Karens <laughs> loads of Karens people. <laughs> but that is right we'll back down sorry <laughs> <laughs> so they had been used to violently put down any Burmese descent that got too boisterous I think they had the last time they'd done this was in like the 30s I, was, I read about that recently and I was trying to find the exact date in the book but I couldn't it was really annoying I think it was around like 1936, but I might be wrong. Let's go with it. So, according to an account in Donald M. C. King's book, Suzuki ordered the, the Burmese Independence Army to destroy two large Karen villages, killing all the men, women, and children with swords. And children? It was an act of retribution. Yeah, it's really brutal. Oh, no. An act of retribution after one of his officers was killed in an attack by forces resistant to the Japanese. Also, when the Brit- uh, Burmese Independence Army arrested suspected British collaborators, they simply put them on court-martial and executed them in public, frequently with bayonets, as the Japanese had taught them to do. So it's really brutal. Similar things had happened in Racking State, where the Rohingya were seen to be fighting for the British against independence, a conflict that continues to run to this day. There's a good Washington Post article on this about how like a lot of the conflicts that we're seeing today like has, like, a lot of kind of like basis in World War Two and this. So yeah, so this incident, Seekins wrote, ignited a, a race war with massacres continuing on both sides until the Japanese army could come in and rein in the hooligan element in the uh, the Burmese Independence Army. Rein it in. Rein that in. Suzuki and Aung San wanted to reach uh, Rangoon, or Yangon as it's known uh, now, first, because they hoped that this would allow them to secure independence in the country, just like call it. However, by March, the capital had already fallen into Japanese hands and the promised declaration of independence was not forthcoming. 
So when their promised independence failed to materialize, many of the 13, uh, 13 comrades angrily confl- confronted Suzuki, to which he replied, independence is not the kind of thing you can get by begging it for it from other people. You should just proclaim it yourselves. If the Japanese refuse to give it, well then, tell them that you will cross over to some place like Twent and proclaim it and set up your own government. What's the difficulty about that? If they start shooting, you shoot back. <laughs> so essentially, God. he told the Brit that Burmese to attack his own army. That is... It's pretty cool, though. I mean, like, that's how much he, like, believed in the cause. Like, he was a genuine, like, anti-colonial Pan-Asianist. And he, he, to him, like, the war was a war to go and liberate Asia. So when Japan refused to liberate Burma, he told them to liberate themselves. So what side is, is he on cool. here? Some cynics, however, say it's because he saw the uh, Burmese independence army as his own private army and wanted to keep it away from command of the Japanese imperial forces. But yeah, he often deemed himself the uh, the Japanese Lawrence of Arabia. He even asked his own Japanese officers in the Mkikan if they would follow him if he turned and fought the imperial Japanese army. So he probably meant business. Business time. <laughs> also, like, the attitude wasn't uncommon. The Imperial Japanese Army was like a hotbed of Pan-Asian sentiment. Not the Navy, though. And what's going on with his personal life? Does he have a personal life? I guess not. No, I mean, like, there's no, like, records of that. Just, like, all that seems to exist about him at the moment is just, like, um, his, uh, his military career yeah. and, like, what he did in, in Burma. Mainly just, like, what he did in Burma. I guess if you're, like, a spy, then you can't really have a personal life. Yeah. I mean, like... Yeah, I mean, I think there could be like a better biography about him. Maybe that's something I can, I can do if I ever learn to speak Japanese and understand Japanese sufficiently well, which doesn't seem likely <laughs> at the moment after my two two and a half years of learning it. Yeah, tell me about um, it. So, at the suggestion of turning against the Japanese army, uh, Aung San reportedly replied to him that as long as Suzuki was in the country, he would not undertake such a move. Which kind of like shows like the friendship and trust between the nationalists and uh, Suzuki. Yeah. Uh, they yeah they gen- they genuinely believe that Suzuki supported their aspirations for independence. So they didn't want to they want to go to war against him. This did not go down well with the Japanese commanders. Lieutenant General Shijiro Ieda, concerned over the nature of J- Suzuki's pro-independence stance and authority over the Burmese independence army, orchestrated Suzuki's recall to Japan. Which is kind of curious because Ieda evidently was quite sympathetic to Burmese independence. However, he seemed quite worried over the disruption that Suzuki's enthusiasm would cause to ongoing operations on the Burma front. So, Suzuki found himself back in Tokyo where he fulfilled the duties of his official role. Because, I mean, like, obviously spies have, like, an official position and then they do go and do something else. Yeah, of course. So his official role in Tokyo was um, head of shipping. Head of shipping! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's basically what he had to do for the rest of the war. He just oversaw transport and logistics. So he actually had to do really sad end. work. Yeah, just had to like push pencils for the rest of oh, the no. war. Really sad end for such a like talented spy. So, well, next, well, although Suzuki never saw independence granted to Burma while there, it was finally granted at least nominally um, by Tokyo at Tojo's behest on the first of August nineteen. 19- Tojo, we know about him from one of our previous episodes, yeah. so you can go back and As listen to the Tojo episode. 
he was genuinely sympathetic to uh, Asian independence movements. It's just, I don't think what he believed that would bring about and what they believed that would bring about, I don't think they that was exactly the same. But he did kind of like still have like a genuine kind of like sympathy there. Um, to rein in the Burma, Burmese independence army, its number was, number was reduced to about 5,000, only like 5,000 men in the first instance, but trained properly. And all put under the command of Aung San. Uh, when independence was granted in 1943, this was increased to 15,000 and then gradually increased thereafter. Aung San was made Minister of War uh, upon formation of the state of Burma. Mm. Um, Suzuki, meanwhile, remains pushing pencils and scheduling shipping. Does he at least, like, I guess he doesn't. You don't have any record of his personal life, so maybe at this time, maybe no. he could have had more of a personal life during this time, at least. But his work would have like a massive impact on on Myanmar and over the sub- subsequent decades. In uh, nineteen forty five, sensing the turning of the tide, Aung San's Burmese Independence Army, which had been renamed the Burma National Army, okay, yeah, uh, turned turned on the Japanese just as Suzuki had told them to. <laughs> uh, Although this meant Burma then fell temporarily back into British hands, Lord Mountbatten kind of realised that the game was up by that point. <laughs> the game and that was Burma up. Would never, <laughs> Burma would never submit again to British domination. And thanks to the Burma Burmese Independence Army, they now had the means to resist. So, they would be granted independence, but then Aung San would be assassinated in 1947 before ever realising... His no, destiny of being the first prime minister of post Britain Burma. Why yeah, was, who was he assassinated by? Do you know? The for, uh, oh god, I can't remember his name now. Not the name of the person, now, but like who? Basically, by like the prime minister of like, like the prime minister in inverted commas right. of like the colony under the British. Okay. Oh, um, However, most of Burma's senior government positions would be filled by the former Thirty Comrades, most famously General Ni Win who has been condemned as one of the most oppressive dictators in Asian history, oh ruling through an oppressive socialist, militarist program. Weirdly, not unlike the Japanese during World War II. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that. So, his, his reign, like as actual leader, like, lasted from 1962 to 1988. However, he's believed to have pulled the strings from behind the scenes all the way up into 2002. So, he is the man who has, for good or ill, largely shaped the Myanmar we see today. Nguyen also maintained close relations with Suzuki and Minami Kikin members until Suzuki passed away in 1967. So how old was he when he Ooh, got to do on, the maths there? Um, <laughs> 67. He was... So he would have been 70. 70. It's not, not bad. Yeah, he's been to But well. I say that, but my dad is 70. I mean, like in the 40s, yeah, I suppose, suppose it's pretty good. 40s, 50s, and 60s. still... So he was born in the 90s. 19th yeah, but remember last week, Harriet Tubman was 91. And she is, she that is, is true. Savory, that is true. So. <laughs> and also, Japanese people are supposed to live forever. So forever. It's not so impressive. Just forever. <laughs> it's mainly Japanese women that live forever. Yeah, isn't the oldest person alive? Japanese. Yeah. Hang on. Sorry, I'm just going to confirm that for one second. <laughs> yeah, the oldest person ever um, was confirmed actually last year. It was a Japanese woman. She's a, she was yeah. 116. Well, she she was last year, so I guess if she's still alive now, she's 117. So nice. Yeah, that is forever. Like 117. That yeah, is that's crazy. Old enough. It's, uh, 
fantastic diet, Japanese food. It is. I really, 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 really want some Japanese food, food soon. Had Japanese yesterday. Teriyaki. But did you cook it? I did. See this. I want like someone else to cook. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good. I'm very. I'm a very good cook. I love cooking. I make my own stuff. I make my own. You know, things that people don't often make for themselves, like sauces and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but Japanese it just eludes me. I need someone like you, an Asian, to make it for me. <laughs> A genuine bona fide agent. <laughs> That's what you should put on your business card. Don't put anything else. Just write. <laughs> I am actually going to put that And then underneath, a genuine bona fide agent. <laughs> and it's not got a number on it. It's not got <laughs> yeah, any it's contact information. That. It's just got. It's just got. And then people just go home confused and, then, and just Google yeah. it. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Anyway. So he was, yeah, he was so, 70 and he died. 70, yeah. And Niwen had invited him to Burma in 1966, one year, just one year earlier. So in 1981, Niwen bestowed the remaining six veterans of the Minami Kikun with the honorary award Order of Aung San at the Presidential Palace in Rangoon, or Yangon. As Colonel Suzuki's widow came to the ceremony, so he would have got it had he still been alive. Um, so even after after he resigned as Bur- the Burma Socialist Program Party Chairman in 1988, Niwin still held gatherings of the old Minami Kikan members into the mid 1990s, and it is believed that the Minami Kikan remained in contact with the Myanmar government until 1995. So I mean, like this pan kind of like group just had they just hung out contact with like the government had like influence over the Miami government wow. into the mid 90s it's kind of crazy I know this is the, the most two... that I've ever learned about Myanmar by the way so, no. <laughs> uh, in 2014 so only six years wow. ago during a trip to Japan the Myanmar army senior general Min Ang Hileang I can't pronounce that visited the tomb of Colonel Suzuki to pay his respects oh my gosh in the minds of many Myanmar army officers and many people in Myanmar in general, Suzuki has remained a key figure, a man behind the clandestine beginnings of the Burma Independence Army and the nucleus of the legendary 30 comrades. Uh, no, so yeah, Suzuki continues to be remembered as influential in Myanmar's history. His and Japan's direct involvement in Myanmar's independence movement has had far-reaching consequences. Japan continued to support Myanmar after the war, after his coup, Nee wins Myanmar received more than two hundred million dollars. Wow! From uh, nineteen fifty-five to nineteen sixty-five. In addition, Tokyo's official development assistance program has served as a vital lifeline to the Nee Win regime and its successes. Wow! So yeah, that is Suzuki and all the other things that happened around Suzuki. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was it was like a little a tiny history of like that particular part of this is a micro history, Dan. It is a micro history. It is a micro history. Just like yeah, that particular like event basically. Yeah. Very nice. Yes. Yeah, it's like I was gonna either it was a kind of toss up between him or um Iwaichi Fujiwara, yeah. He's the other kind of like Japanese like super spy he did. Basically, did the same like the same thing like in Malaysia, okay. informing like the uh, the Indian National Army. Cool. I've got. We would then go on to fight in India. 
during uh, Operation I Go. I've actually got a spy I'm going to do, but I'm not. I, now you've done a spy, I'm not going to do spy. But I'll do what? I'll do it in like a couple of weeks. We could just do like a spy section. Spy section. Just do loads of like. Just do could, yeah, I could spies. do him. I've got his. Basically, I've got his um, like authorized biography. Oh, nice. No, sorry. I autobiography. Wonder... But the, there's ah. a there's a an article that comes before it, which is an authorized interview. Yeah. So yeah, basically that's that's interesting because he's like a spy that managed to like get away with everything and live for the rest of his life, like oh, as nice. normal. It was really, it's a really crazy story. Maybe I will do him next week. Yeah, do it. Yeah, do it. Spies are cool. Everyone likes a spy from which country? From England. Ah, a British yeah. spy. An umbrella wielding British was spy. He not? Was he a Russian spy? Oh, yeah, so it's one of them because I feel like I've done so many people that have been suspected of being Russian spies, yeah. <laughs> but. <laughs> this one was legit a Russian spy. After watching uh, the Americans, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good She's good now one. Now finished. I'm in the mood for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are you making for dinner tonight? I am going to make a uh, chicken cashew nut and celery. A uh, Cantonese favorite. Oh, that's interesting. Are, are you alone tonight for dinner? I am. Yeah. Me too. Where is uh Where is young Matthew? He is watching the football. <laughs> Really? Well, because the Whereabouts? football is... He's at just at his friends. So basically they're like... They've, we've got BT Sport through from yeah. my dad. Thanks, dad. And um, nice. and so he's plugging in his laptop inside and they're like putting the TV like outside so they can watch it in the garden. <laughs> so it's some sort awesome. of like weird like garden TV setup. I don't know <laughs> what's going on. But yeah, he's watching... I did check the score and as far as I know... Um, Arsenal are still winning, so he'll be happy about that. Um, did you see the crazy like beach scenes? Yeah, I did. Yeah, was it? I can't remember. Probably. But, yeah, they've. It's probably happening on all. They said it's like a state of emergency, or whatever. And it's like <laughs> also okay. So I look at those scenes and I'm like, oh, idiots, like going to the beach. But I also look at those scenes and I'm like, this does not look relaxing to me. Like yeah. going to the beach with like. A million sweaty other yeah, yeah. people, like neck, like right up in me. Like I know it's yeah, not it's relaxing. Grim. Yeah, just sit in your garden, or or if you don't have a garden, sit in a park, or or sit in your house. Like seriously, like it's not relaxing. Yeah, I don't like. I don't like seeing anywhere that's crowded when it's sunny. I really want to do the uh, Hadrian's. Wall <gasps> I want to do the Hadrian's Wall walk. Oh my god, so should badly. we do it? Yes, yes, yes a hundred percent. As soon as we can, let's do Hadrian's. There's going to be no like. There's no like holidays abroad this year, so like that's this is like the perfect. Yeah, she's going like September when it's not hot because it's a long walk, but yeah. like it would still be like warmish because Hadrian's yeah, Wall yeah. isn't like it's not up, but no, it's not no. a mountain, but it's quite long. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, because you're walking like coast to yeah, coast. Yeah, it's coast. Exactly. You have to like take your stuff with you. Yeah. But yeah, it would be really good. I've always wanted to do that one because as you know, apparently it's like eight days. Part Scottish, so. Well, ah, in September, right, I might nice. not have a job anymore, so maybe we could go when I don't have a job. <laughs> I've got one until October, but... Well, there you go. Maybe we can go. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll go with me earlier. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Who knows about any work right now? I started volunteering <laughs> today, so... Ah, I nice. Farm shop. It was very ah. good. I'm, like, part... I'm basically doing, like, the book section, and I priced books, and it was very fun. And I got to look at, very like, nice. the books that people were giving away and um yeah and please remember everyone to if you're going to give away things to trash shops please wash your clothes beforehand 
and do not give yeah. electrical items unless you ask first and they specifically say that you're taking them because they can't take them and they just have to trash them and that's just a shame. Yeah, that yeah. is a shame. They have to like cut the wires and everything. So it's just... Oh, and also most treasure shops right now aren't taking homewares. So check if you're going to oh, give yeah, homewares, check first because obviously with COVID they're, they're not taking any homewares. So yeah. Be careful with all of those things. Thank you very much for this public service announcement. <laughs> <laughs> so, if any, uh, if any rare books about the Pacific War come up in uh, the charity shop, I will put them aside for you for sure. And uh, we do have oh. a first edition of a Charles Dickens. Really? No, it's oh, one hundred and twenty-five pounds. Really? Was like, I was looking at it like, ooh, like. <laughs> <laughs> It's our mutual friend, though, so it's not one of the, like, really big, famous ones. Yeah. I did say I'd have a look in, like, some of the second-hand bookshops in, you know, the ones in Tottenham Court Road and see yeah. how much they're selling first editions of Dickens for. Because that's Actually, got to be rare. See, yeah. Normally, like, once upon a time, that would have, like, sold for, like, 10p and someone would have found it and been like, woohoo! But now, now they know. Yeah. experts in to, like... 100%. Value in these books. Yeah, I've I've actually Crazy. got. I went into a charity shop once, and I was looking. And my, one of the first things I do is, if you see the first like three Harry Potter books, I yeah. do look in the front to see if the first editions. And I found Some a first edition of like Chamber of Secrets, and I went up to the till, and yeah. I was like, "You should probably sell this online yeah, because yeah, yeah. you would, or like sell it to an auction house or something." Yeah, yeah, definitely. because you would get. I've got a complete set of first editions, just FYI. Otherwise, I would have bought it for myself. <laughs> but um, that's only because I wow, read them gonna... so early. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's... That's going to be worth yeah, something. Yeah, it's, defi- it's definitely worth something. You don't have, like... Music. Put that on a safe. I have, like, 17 copies of the first book from, like, different countries. <laughs> and I've, I've got, like, the tapes. Oh, yeah. So I collect them. I'm a collector. So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at HaveYouEverPod and subscribe wherever you're listening to yep, this that could be apple spotify whatever you want yeah wherever you are subscribe on all the platforms tell your mum about us tell your friends about us and thank you so much for all the listening thank you very, very much bye, bye. <laughs>